A fault is a weakness, a defect, a fracture. Faults divide, tear, and consume. Here in the city of Chester's chasm, we struggle to maintain that precarious balance over the precipice in the earth, in our lives, and in our hearts. This story is about four teenagers with faults of their own. The fault between my faith and freedom. The fault between my family and identity. The fault between my choice and my obligation. The fault between my life and death. As these fractures grow, we stand at the edge and ask what must we sacrifice to sate the void's endless hunger? Is it possible that the answer lies within all our faults? Hello, and welcome to All Our Faults, a Monster Hearts 2 actual play podcast. I am Mistress Winter, the MC for this series. This is part three of our Faulty Flashpoint prologue series. On what would become a pivotal day in his childhood, Crispin is thrust into a conflict between his faith and the world outside. Please stay tuned after the show for more information on how you can support us. We hope you enjoy. Faulty Flashpoint. Personal Dragons. Crispin, your mother, Luelle, has graded your most recent homeschool test. You've gotten average marks, but she does throw in a remark that your siblings had better ones, which sends off all kinds of red flags. But the fact that she doesn't follow it up with any more discussion of the siblings who were lost in miscarriages at least settles your mind for the day. The well has deemed your work sufficient enough that you have earned recess and has walked you down the street to a community park. The weather is really perfect. You know, just that bit of cool but sunny, so you feel warm but evenly temperatured by the breeze. The swing sets are wide open for you as you step into the park. Crispin walks with his mom to the bench where she always sits. It's under a tree, so it's nice and shaded. To an untrained eye, it will look like she is praying a rosary, but I know that she is speaking to my siblings. So I will escort her over to that bench, and when she is seated, I will press a kiss to her cheek, as I am mandated to do, and then I will turn and run as fast as my body will carry me. I take a detour on the way to the swings to cross the monkey bars, and I do them normally the first time, and then I go backwards, and then one more time forwards, doing skipping bars along the way, and then I swing and launch myself off and do a cool, I, I don't know it because I'm not allowed to watch movies, but a, t- a cool like three-point superhero landing that feels very awesome. And then I'm just going to run over to my favorite swing, it's, a, it's an older playground, but they still have a couple of baby swings and then three like regular kid-sized swings. And then there's just one that is there presumably for like a parent to swing next to their kid. 
but the seat is a little wider and it's made of a little bit thicker rubber, uh, probably recycled from a tire. And I'm going to throw myself into that one and listen to the familiar creak as I pump my legs so hard because today is going to be the day that I get it to do that thing where it swings all the way around and I'm going to prove science wrong. (laughs) Yes, you've got to prove science wrong because it's faith that matters, right? Absolutely. You tear around the playset completely free of any worries, enjoying your childhood innocence, albeit isolated. Occasionally, you will catch sight of your mother. She has pulled out a clipboard, which you know has several drawing pages, in which she begins to draw flowers, little animals, insects, because they're your siblings' favorites. And she talks to no one as she does. You know that there are piles of these drawings in that one room in the house next to each of their beds that were to be because she cannot let go of them and will not get rid of anything that she has given them. But as this is a regular occurrence, it is just the other half of an otherwise peaceful, beautiful day that is quickly invaded as a swarm of other kids come rushing into the park. They tear the place up in their youthful fun and games, of course. Nothing malicious. Uh, They have kids that jump onto the swings and are uh, swinging so high and then jumping off into the rubber matting that they've put down instead Mm. of the the wood chips chips. and stuff. Kids are chasing each other up and down the slides, going both ways because going down one way is not the sensible thing to do with a slide. (laughs) You steal a glance over at your mother who now looks panicked and lost in the sudden chaos that just erupted into the park. Now granted, these kids are not completely alone. There are other adults that are ambling into sight, chatting with each other, keeping an eye on these various kids. One of the kids runs over to the the tire you're in, sticks her head sideways to, to look at you. What you doing? Crispin regards this child for a moment and he just goes, I, I'm, I'm swinging and I'm just, I'm trying to see if I can swing all the way around. I, I've tried that a couple of times, but I wasn't able to do it. Well, you're pretty small, so you probably couldn't do it. I could if I wanted. Well, but you didn't. She has no response and decides it's better to go off and play somewhere else than to... <laughs> continue arguing that she totally could have. I think Crispin notices that a sort of line is forming around the swing set. Um, There are kids waiting. And he knows if he stays here that his mom will eventually find him and make him leave. So I think he slows his swinging, dragging his feet as delicately as he can through the dirt to not mess up his shoes because he knows that that will upset his parents. And he abandons the swing, and I think he takes off for the climbing structure 
he knows that there are several little cubbies and hideaways underneath between the panels of the the different platforms and rope climb apparatuses uh, where he can watch the other kids from a slightly less exposed vantage point. From your vantage point, you spy a game of Foursquare starting up on a nearby patch of cement that is marked out with the various squares. The oldest boy is ordering the teams, bringing people in and forming the line, really taking that leadership position and everybody seems to respect his authority and age. And he obviously takes the king's spot and has the rubber dodgeballs, you know, the ones that most schools don't let you have anymore because they're too (laughs) dangerous. And they begin the game in earnest. Other kids, uh, especially the younger ones, are playing games of tag, giggling and laughing. There are a couple of really young children who are playing some sort of patty cake game up on one of the other platforms. It's a strange sight for you, but it is in its own way wondrous. I think Crispin will take a few moments to sort of take in the chaos around him. Everything in his life is quiet and orderly and set out to a specific agenda. So moments like this of volume and cacophony and chaos are precious and rare to him. And for a few moments, he is absolutely content to just watch everything unfold around him. And he observes, you know, squabbles over, oh, that was, that was over the line. No, it wasn't. It was on the line. It counts. And, you know, girls braiding each other's hair and boys racing up to the top of the the climbing wall and kids just generally running and laughing. I think the laughter is what strikes him the most because it's just, people don't laugh at church. People don't laugh at home. Father will sometimes laugh at his own jokes, but it's not the same. It doesn't feel as true. And so he just witnesses these kids around him and he's struck by the fact that they don't seem burdened the way he feels. They're not waiting for the next time they have to perform their duty or recite a prayer or answer for some wrong. They're just enjoying themselves and they're enjoying themselves together. And I think even if Crispin can't identify it in the moment, there is this deep envy, but also joy that he's getting to witness this freedom that is so foreign to him. He's happy that other kids apparently feel better than he does. In a way, Crispin, you may wish to capture this moment in a bottle and in some ways you do in your memory capturing it like a like fireflies in a mason jar and marvel at it hoping to keep it because it is just so precious but then the reality of your life and the perception of that life seeps in when you overhear a couple of children below one of the girls has spotted you a girl you'd later 
come to know as Patricia or Scarlet. She takes notice of you and before she can call out to invite you to whatever activity or game that she's playing with her friend, her friend stops her. No, don't invite him. He's one of those religious freaks and tries to pull Patricia away, who lingers for a moment watching you, a look of uncertainty on her face, hesitation. Now, whether that's hesitation to comply with her friend or to rethink talking to you, that is never settled as Patricia turns and follows her friend away. I think that that is not an unusual occurrence for Crispin. In the, on the few occasions where he has accompanied his mother to the grocery store or something mundane like that, I think he is accustomed to feeling the eyes of judgment on him at all times. And so as much as the friend's words hurt, he's not surprised. And introspectively, he reminds himself that it is, it is the burden of the faithful to be persecuted and we will be rewarded justly. And I think he closes a hand around the little cross necklace around his neck. His family, strangely, doesn't have a lot of crucifixes around the house, but this was a gift from a well-meaning aunt, his mom's sister. The only time he can remember ever hearing from any of his mother's family. And for some reason, he was allowed to keep it. And so he wears it always, not really knowing why it means as much to him as it does. But he, he runs his thumb over the cool metal of it. It's totally smooth. All of the corners are rounded. And he just has a moment of deep isolation. And I don't think he connects the two moments, the, the concept of having this gift from this person he's never even met and this girl calling him a religious freak. But I, th I think there is the beginning of the seeds of doubt, the, the idea that maybe not all is as it should be. Those seeds will be further watered by what happens next. As you contemplate and mire in your isolation, you hear shouts, adult shouts, lots of yelling that starts off low, but then quickly rises in pitch and intensity. Over this new din, your mother is calling out your name, looking frantically for you. Crispin, Crispin, come down here. We need to go. Hoping that she has not spotted me, I'm going to look through the slats where I'm currently positioned and see if I can locate the other yelling, the, the unrest. I think his, his curiosity in this moment, he's, he feels so off balance that I think his curiosity has pulled him away when normally he would snap to and just do whatever his mother asked. It takes you a little bit of shuffling around to find the correct angle to see the source of this argument. You finally spot a group of older people. They're not full-grown adults. In fact, you recognize some of them as older teenagers in your religious sect in the Church of the Eternal Vigilance. It seems that they have come out of your church, which is pretty nearby. Your family wanted to live practically on top of the church. They have engaged in an altercation with non-believers. 
the argument has moved from straight words to posturing for attack. Several of these older kids have already earned their weapon, and those are being wielded threateningly against the other citizenry. In Crispin's mind, he just hears his father encouraging him and beating into him that nothing is more important than the defense of the faith and the church, and that the church is one body, one mind. And so in this moment, Crispin is going to leap down from his perch and I think charge in to back up the teenage boys. Really? Church. Oh, yeah. I love this. Yes. <laughs> uh, Cat hates it, but I'm glad you're excited. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a runaway. And remember that's volatile. Okay, not bad, not bad. It's going to be a 12. Hot 12. Your courageousness and dedication to your faith spurs you on like a jackrabbit. You leap out of the playset, avoiding your mom completely and darting through the kids across the park, out through the street, dodging a car that happened to be passing by, and leap into the fray just as it begins. The bats, we'll call as we'll call them the clubs. Yeah, club. <laughs> I think I think yeah, they're more like I think clubs, I base them yeah. off of like billy clubs. So yeah, 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 yeah. These clubs begin to swing. They impact on the non-believers, while the non-believers give a pretty good walloping with just their fists. They are wholly outmatched without weapons. What do you do? I think at first Crispin has no idea what he's doing. He leapt into this purely on instinct and fueled by the desire for father's approval. But I think once he gets into the fray, he is sort of at a loss. I think there's a moment where he's standing in the middle of once again, chaos. But this is a different chaos. This is a violent, angry, disturbed chaos. And he looks around and he sees the faces of these teenagers, these kids who he looks up to, who he is told he is better than, but who he functionally looks up to. And I think he's scared. He realizes in that moment that he has no desire to violently defend his faith. And he sees a flash of what that girl said. They're religious freaks. He sees these people he respects beating other kids with wooden clubs for a reason he can't fully into it. And so I think after he has that moment of freeze, one of the teenagers probably spots him and and tells him, you know, either either help or get out of the way. And I think he does his best to look like he's helping. Maybe he makes some swipes at one of the smaller non-believers, but I think he's mostly just kind of darting around trying to get out of the way. As the fight fizzles out, he sees the blood and the bruises and the injury, and I think he has to fight being sick, looking upon what his people have done. Will you give me a lash out physically? Still volatile. That's an eight. So with consequences. So you get the option. Okay. I decide how the harm turns out. They learn something about your true nature. 
or you go into your darkest self. And I might have to be reminded what your darkest self is. I'm I'm rereading it myself. <laughs> uh, you don't have a chance of slaying the dragon. Hell, you can't even stand your ground and face it. You're no hero. You're lonely, pathetic, and scared. You can't save anyone, least of all yourself. Ooh. Escape. Yeah, right? Uh, this feels like not a choice. Uh, escape your darkest self by getting a clear, undeniable win. Or when somebody faces their own mortality because you were too scared to save them. So that what you were describing at the end of the battle there, I think matches your darkest self to a T. I agree. (laughs) Like I said, I feel like that's not really a choice. I love that. It's just what happened. In our prologue, our darkest self just coming straight up. Love that. Coming out swinging. (laughs) Quite literally. (laughs) You can hear Father Miller arrive on the scene and encourage defending the faith, taking action against evil and non-believers and their sins that they carry with them to taint this holy ground. His tone changes only slightly as the police car screeches up, its sirens blaring, bringing all attention to it. The fight disperses. Before you can be revealed as been part of the fray. You feel a pair of slender arms pull you away from the group and off to the side. And you look up to see Dr. Miller, Father Miller's wife, holding you safe and protected as if she's been holding you the whole time, protecting you from that violence. The police do not seem to notice as they break up the fight and take stock of the situation. I think when Crispin recognizes Dr. Miller, I think he just immediately bursts into tears. The adrenaline is is starting to wane and fear, anxiety, concern about what his father's going to say sets in. And I think he just weeps into her arms and is babbling, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I... I didn't, I didn't know what else to do, and I froze, and I, I, I there was, they, they, they were bleeding, and I, I, and he just is stuttering to get the words out through sobs. Crispin, Crispin, you are okay. You are safe. You needn't worry about anything. Just take a breath. Feel me. You are going to be okay. Her intent is betrayed as you catch sight of one of the non-believers still laying on the ground as the crowd disperses. His head has been cracked open and he is bleeding profusely. And he's at such an angle that in his final moments, he locks eyes with you. Dr. Miller holds you tighter still, shielding you as best as she can until your mother is able to come claim you. As Crispin's mother leads him away, he is compelled to look back at the body, the person still laying on the ground. And I think he breaks his mother's grip and he runs over and he places a palm over his heart. He kneels down next to him, placing a palm over his heart in what might look like a a prayer or a blessing, but he leans over and looks into this person's eyes and just says, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, and jumps up and runs back to his mother, grabs her hand the way a small child might cling to their mother's apron strings and allows himself to be led home. Before you depart, 
you can hear Father Miller assuring his followers, his parishioners, that they will be looked after by the church and by God just to remain faithful in the face of this adversity and know they will be proven righteous in the end. But you also catch a glimpse of Father Miller who is staring at you and just a look of not just disappointment, but almost a look of betrayal. The specter of a future punishment follows you home. Thank you so much for listening to our third All Our Faults Prelude. A big thank you to the Tabletop Tailspinners Network and creative director Emma Kokar for giving us a home. This episode's star was Kat Kelly, who can be found on Instagram at Kat Kelly Social. I can be found on X, Blue Sky, and Instagram at GMistressWinter. If you would like to support the show, please navigate to the Tabletop Tailspinners Network link tree in the show notes. If you feel so inclined to donate, we have a Ko-Fi site. Every little bit helps to curb our production costs so that we can continue to produce good content for you. If you like this story, tell others. Give us a good rating, comment, and ask your friends to listen and do the same. Also, be on the lookout for more offerings from the Tabletop Tailspinners Network, such as the Chronicles of Kriath, Improv Madness, Darkened Skies, a 10 Candle series, and so much more. Until next time, keep your hearts safe and your inner child alive. This has been a tale from the Tabletop Tailspinners Network.